Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Good morning, friends. It's my sixth Sunday preaching to you here at Timothy Eaton Memorial Church, and each week I've meant to tell you what I'm preaching on from the Bible and why. I figure the Gospel of John is as good a place to begin our life together as any. It's the great gospel of light and shadow, of truth and deeper truth. I love it. We'll be studying it until the beginning of Advent, and then we'll move to more traditional, seasonal sorts of texts. Every week, I've also meant to tell you the best reaction I got from a friend who heard I was taking this job. He said, oh, you're a real Canadian now that you have a job at Eaton's. <laughs> and sure enough, I join y'all as a Canadian citizen on Halloween. I'll take a pledge to the king, and I'll continue my goal of smuggling the word y'all into as many conversations in Canada as I possibly can. I've preached so far through some of the most famous passages in John, the water to wine passage, the washing of the feet passage, the one that you just heard is not one of the most famous passages in John. It's a dispute between Jesus and his own people. He's just fed 5,000 people with a few loaves. And now he's discussing with his fellow Jews what exactly that means. They all know what it means when someone can miraculously provide bread. It's a reference to manna the bread that God miraculously provided to the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. All Israel's been waiting and hoping for a new leader like Moses, someone who can feed and lead the people. And is Jesus that person? You can bet the occupying Romans noticed. If Jesus can feed thousands from nothing, he can surely raise an army to lift an occupation. In Protestant churches the last hundred years or so, we've focused on the wrong question about these miracle stories. We focused on the question, do miracles happen? More liberal churches have said, no, it's more of a spiritual thing. More conservative churches have said, sure, sometimes. Wrong question. The question is, what does this mean? Everyone in the Bible agrees that miracles happen. But demons can do miracles. People in other religions or no religion experience miracles. The question is, what does this particular weird event that we just experienced mean? If Jesus can feed everybody anytime, then who is he? He knows the question is whether he can provide manna. And he answers, in an even more mysterious way. He says, I am manna. In fact, Jesus says, I'm even better than the manna of old because the ancestors ate that manna and they all died. I am the bread of life, he says. Eat this bread and never die. And then, as if that wasn't confusing enough, he ups the ante. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. If you don't, you have no part with me. Uh, okay, Jesus, we weren't talking about eating you, were we? I mean, there are laws against cannibalism in Judaism and in like 
every other religion there is, you can hear their confusion. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? Now, this would have been a good moment for Jesus to apply the brakes. Say, hey, I'm using something called a metaphor here, people. Everyone calm down. Nobody's eating anybody. All I mean is a little piece of bread, a little sip of wine or juice or something. He doesn't do that. He adds to the debate. They're asking, is this the manna giver? He confuses matters. I am the manna. He confuses matters even more. Eat my flesh. This is not how you teach to be understood. For example, I'm new here, and if someone's not tracking with me, I slow down. I try to be more accessible. And not just me either. Christianity the last hundred years or so has been at our best when we've been clear. There's goodness in being clear. For example, a friend of mine started her life in faith with the Unitarians, then moved to the Baptists, then tacked back to the Anglicans. She said, I couldn't handle the Baptists politically, but she said, they gave me a treasure. They gave me access to Scripture. She says, they taught me, well, the New Testament's the part in the back. It's the last quarter. Here's the Old Testament. It's before Jesus. Here's how you find any passage that you want to find. I think in more liberal churches, we don't do that because we assume everybody already knows that. But we don't. We're just not brave enough to break open the basics, unlike our Baptist brethren. Billy Graham was so successful in the last century because he made conversion clear. Pray this, do that, and you will live. The problem is, Jesus often goes out of his way to be unclear. He must be reading a book called How to Lose Friends and Alienate People because he's sending them away in droves. Scripture says because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. I mean, you would too if someone you were following said to eat their flesh and then didn't play the metaphor card right away, right? I don't mean to say that faith is complicated. It's simple. But it's a mystery. The more you know, the more you don't know. Graham Greene's book, The Power and the Glory, is one of the great novels of the Christian faith. It's about an alcoholic Catholic priest in Mexico during the revolution. And he's shadowed by a communist government official who's trying to stamp out the Catholic Church to bring liberty to the poor. And at one point, the whiskey priest says to this government minder, you know, your, your new government has some good points. It might work. We have often oppressed the poor. But he says this, even though I'm a whiskey priest, I put God in people's mouths. He said, in a thousand years, your government will be a blip of a memory. But there will still be a bad priest like me putting God in people's mouths. And that's not a metaphor. Someone wise said the real miracle in Jesus' life is he has 12 close friends after the age of 30. We live in a crushingly lonely age. And it's strange, but I gotta tell you, 
The church is the answer to our society's loneliness. I mean, you can't go to coffee hour over here for 10 minutes without meeting 10 new people that you didn't know. We don't need some program to fix it. We are the program to fix it. The problem is, while our neighbors and we are deeply lonely, we're kind of like this when it comes to community. I mean, we want it, but we also want our freedom. We don't want people to get too close. Just stay over there and be nice to me from a distance. We want community life and we fear it. Many of us have strong opinions about what ails the church. Where are the young people? What's the future? And because we're afraid, we fight. So in the 90s, the fight was often over worship style, organs or guitars. More recently, it's about inclusion. Who's in, who's out, who can lead, who can't. Conservatives say liberals have given up on true faith. Liberals say conservatives are out of touch. Y'all, I just wonder sometimes if our real problem isn't Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, have you noticed how baffling he is? How maddening he is? You ask him to be clear, and he just gets less clear. You ask him to make sense, and he gives you a mystery wrapped in a puzzle, shrouded in an enigma. And this is the guy we follow? Now, many churches have done well by turning Sunday worship into as much like a shopping mall as they can. Comfortable seating, excellent food choices, great parking, everyone's nice to you. We would never be able to do that fully with this beautiful building, right? But the real reason you can't make Christianity into a consumer enterprise is Jesus. He's too mystifying. In the black church where I come from, if a preacher's droning on and preaching up here instead of down here, someone will yell, make it plain. Well, if you follow Jesus, you're going to tell him to make it plain all the time. And he probably won't. I spend a lot of time in this sanctuary, usually when no one else is around. And I pray God will fill it. Not just with people. Every preacher wants the church to be full. It's good for our careers, right? But churches build ambitiously. This building wasn't built to seat 1,200 people every single Sunday. We have 1,200 at like Billy Bishop's wedding and Lady Eaton's funeral, but not all the time. A friend of mine says this, here's the surefire way to fill the church. Just put a banner up on St. Clair Ave that says, free beer, and it'll be full. I promise. Until the beer runs out. No, I pray that it would be full of Jesus in here. That we would be full to overflowing with Jesus. And I pray the seats would be full too. But in church, deepening discipleship is what matters not just attendance. Billy Graham used to say that sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in your garage makes you a car. So I pray we'd be full of Jesus in here. So growth in numbers is a good thing. But growth in numbers is not what happens in this story. Jesus looks around at his dwindling congregation and he whines, sulks, grumbles, but do you want to go away too? I mean, they all left. 
And Peter's response is precious. He says, Lord, to whom would we go? (laughs) I mean, we got no other invites. Everyone who had other options has already left. But we're stuck with you. And you're stuck with us. This is the perfect image for the church. Jesus baffles us, mystifies us, infuriates us. Many leave And only those with no better options stick around. That's the church. That's us. It's not a flattering portrait. And so my title, Losers. The philosopher Alain de Botton says the word loser is our culture's most crushing epithet. It's worse than a cuss word to call someone a loser. I remember a former NFL coach being asked about the quarterback he used to coach. How good was that quarterback? And he said, just good enough to get you beat. (laughs) Loser. Most of us have had to walk into a lunchroom or a social circumstance where we didn't know where to sit down or otherwise deposit ourselves. And you feel like you should have the big L just tattooed on your forehead, right? My kids noticed that in every popular portrayal of high school from the time I was in high school, everyone's always getting beaten up and thrown into lockers and abused. And so they keep asking, was it like that in the 80s? (laughs) Every time you went to school, you got your lunch money stolen? And I said, no, most of us just sort of felt like losers. I mean, ignored. Like, getting picked on a little might have been an improvement. More seriously now, I tend to assume in a church as big and storied as this one that everyone feels like an outsider. Long-timers feel pushed aside by new people. New people feel like they can't get heard in the structure. Lots feel unrecognized or unthanked or unnoticed. Here's the trick. We all feel like outsiders. As long or as short as any of us have been here. If you will, the only insiders are outsiders. Jesus keeps turning the definitions around so that the people who think they're out are actually in. And the people who think they're in, well, I'll let you finish that sentence. Churches tend to do really well when we're on the margins of our societies. The New Testament was written either by people in jail or just got out of jail are on their way to jail. So the more familiar you are with jail, the more sense the New Testament makes. This is, in fact, my favorite rationale for why mainline churches are dwindling. You can track it. We grow when we're invested in prison ministry. And when we're not in prison ministry, we decline. Why? Because if you're crazy enough about Jesus to go talk about him to the people everyone else discards, then you'll grow. And if you're not, You won't, and you'll shrink, and you should. This is true internationally, too. The church in Korea grew like mad in the early 20th century. Why? Because their Japanese colonizers didn't like Christianity. And so to join the Christian church was a way to stick it to the authorities. It's true in South Sudan. There are two Episcopalians in South Sudan for every one in the United States. Episcopalianism is a Sudanese faith. Why? Because when Omar al-Bashir was terrorizing South Sudan, joining the Christian church was a way to fight back with forgiveness. 
the church tends to do really well when we're on the edges of things. When we're in the center, doling out favors and crowning monarchs, we lose the way of Jesus really fast. And now you see why Jesus doesn't take this well-fed army and march on Jerusalem or Rome. Instead, he calls it down to just the few losers who have nowhere else to go. And what he speaks to them seems like nonsense. But it's not nonsense. It's the only sense there is. He is the bread of life, manna all over again. And this bread is his flesh. The wine is his blood, broken and poured out. Don't understand that? Good. I don't either. All we need to do is eat and drink and live. St. Augustine, church father from the 5th century in North Africa, said that the Lord's Supper works backwards from ordinary food. Normally we eat and digest and food becomes part of our body. But in the Lord's Supper we eat and the food digests us and makes us into the body of Jesus. And we can't understand that. Jesus is trying to show us that we can't get our head around God. He's baffling, infuriating for a reason. We might be able to get our hearts around God. And if we do that, our heads will follow. And now you know why else we struggle as mainline Protestants so much. We're a heady bunch. We got lots of degrees in here. We sit in rows like it's a lecture hall. We have a lecture. We try to figure things out. Forms of faith that are growing use their head and the rest of their body. Pentecostalism is growing so fast it may overtake the Roman Catholic Church in the next few decades, north of a billion people. And they worship with their whole body. And they don't ever have everything as scripted as we do. Other forms of faith that are growing are more calisthenic than ours. Stand, sit, kneel, cross yourself. Why? I don't know. Do this. In a few decades, you'll understand. Faith might be a matter of training our bodies. And eventually, our heads follow. So a teacher of mine was asked by a colleague at the university, explain God to me. And he said, oh, I can't do that. You're far too corrupt. But here's what we can do. You can hold your hands like this and kneel down with me and repeat after me, our Father who art in heaven, good. Do that for a few decades and your brain will catch up eventually. Borrowing from another religion, Malcolm X got a letter in prison from his brother. His brother had converted to Islam. Malcolm hadn't. And his brother writes him, Malcolm, don't eat pork. I'll explain later. Faith comes from a trained body. And eventually, your head even comes along too. And the best way to do this is to hold out your hands like a beggar and receive a little piece of bread and be told this is Jesus' own body. Eat and live. Sure, it's a symbol. And it's the deepest truth there is. There's an image I adore for Jesus. If you haven't seen it, come visit my office. I've got one upstairs. It's a pelican. It's based on Roman biology. 
The Romans thought that mother pelicans fed their young by tearing off bits of their own flesh. Now, it's not true biologically, but almost every mother I talk to says, oh yeah, that's true spiritually. (laughs) Christ, our mother pelican, feeds us with her own flesh, and we live. Just a symbol? Sure. And a wedding ring is just a hunk of metal. A flag is just a piece of fabric. We live our lives by symbols. They're more important than food or drink or oxygen. Every pelican really means Jesus. And so does everything else in creation. Now, there's some advantages to being a loser. If you're already a loser, you're not afraid of being called a loser. Because <laughs> you have nothing left to lose. You can take risks. One of our kids, blessed public school teachers, told him he needed to fail at something every day. Because she said, success for you is too easy. And if you're not failing... You're not trying. And unfortunately, it's true that the best way to learn something is to fail at it. If you never fail, you're probably not learning something. Here in the church, we should have an award every year for the best church failure. Because that means we're taking risks big enough to fail at. And I got to say, Jesus is the biggest loser we've ever had. Promised Messiah, Son of God, winds up executed and abandoned. Some of our stories say he goes to hell itself. And not only that, he tells us to follow him there. He gives out a cross for us and says, follow me down here. This is the way to life. Most of the world thinks the way to succeed is to climb up and up and up, right? Jesus says, it's all backwards. Come with me as low as you can get, deeper than death itself. I mentioned media portrayals of secondary school before. Series like Stranger Things are redeeming the whole idea of being a loser. New generations brag about being nerds. The whole valence has swapped. Because all these losers and nerds on the edges of things band together and find one another, become friends, and then save the universe. (laughs) And the rest of us who inhabit the universe now owe our lives to a few losers. That's the story we all want, from outsiders to those who bless others. But it takes real friendship, which is fragile and precious and hard to find. And there's no real friendship without failure and forgiveness. In church, we sort of major in friendship, spiced with forgiveness. That's what we do. And what else are the disciples? Who else is Jesus? but a nerd who saves the world with a few friends. In my morning prayers, there's a statement of faith from this passage. When it's time to say what we believe as Christians, it uses the words of Peter. Lord, to whom should we go? I mean, we got no other options. We're stuck with you. You're stuck with us. Now, you loser and a few loser friends get busy saving the world. There's a famous prayer among churches that grow, but it's a bold one. I'm not sure we're ready for it yet, but I'm going to tell it to you. You ready? Here's the prayer. Now, you've been warned, and I'm going to warn you even again before I tell you, I know a church that prayed this prayer, printed little cards in calligraphy, and then took all the cards away because it worked. Here it is. Lord, 
Send us the people no one else wants. Lord, send us the people no one else wants. I got to tell you, if you pray that, God will do it. And it will be difficult because people are hard to love, just like you and I are hard to love. These are the kinds of losers Jesus is always gathering around himself, not just to save them, but to save everything. Amen.